How many times have you heard he is risen today? <laughs> Not enough, right? Okay, well, he is. And I uh, appreciate very much that you're here. And I believe this is going to be a fantastic course, and not because I'm teaching it, but I have the joy of teaching now with my new friend, Zev Rosenberg, and I'm going to just take a couple of minutes and uh, give you a uh, little introduction to him, uh, one uh, from his own bio that he wrote, so I'm going to read the high points of that, uh, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about my personal uh, relationship with him, and then he will come and begin to teach. Uh, Zev Rosenberg was born in Denver, Colorado, and he was raised in a strongly identified, though non-observant, Jewish family. Uh, he attended Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Anyone know it? Well, you should know that you basically have to be a genius to get in there, right? So that tells you one thing. Major philosophy, lived in Israel, studied in various rabbinic academies prior to attending Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, in 1976, he returned to the U.S., and following a dramatic conversion to Christianity, he attended both the Ilif School of Theology in Denver and the School of Theology at the University of South in the Tennessee, in Tennessee in the Tennessee. It reminds me of that commercial, The Indianapolis. Did you see that with Barclay and those guys? Okay, sorry. Uh, 1982, he was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church, and he served congregations in Colorado, West Virginia, Texas, and here in Ohio in Canton. Uh, during uh, Zev's years as a Christian, he struggled to reconcile his profession of Christianity and his identity as a Jewish person. In 2004, Zev left the priesthood and he uh, immersed himself in his Jewish roots here at Temple Israel in Canton, Ohio. And he is good friends with Rabbi Spitzer. Only to discover that his attachment to Jesus Christ, though suppressed, was never whole, truly broken. Having returned to Christian faith, Zev has been a member of Canton City Lutheran Parish, serving on evangelical and parish renewal teams. So that's his quick sketch, and he'll tell you a little bit more in a few minutes. Uh, now, uh, for me personally, uh, uh, some of you may know that the Logos Institute, of which I've been associated with, has had a running cohort study group at Congress Lake Country Club for many years. And in 2013, a, a, a number of the members came to me, and it happened on one day, and they said, uh, we should study Hebrews this fall. So I said, okay, great. That's, you know, so awesome to have people come together and say that. So we decided to do it. And uh, we, we dedicated the entire year to both Hebrews and Matthew. We studied Hebrews in the fall, Matthew in the spring, because what we wanted to do was try to uh, look at uh, how the first century Jewish people particularly uh, heard, received, processed, and dealt with the claims that Jesus was the Messiah. So it was an exciting year. And uh, the old saying, uh, when the students are ready, the teacher appears, uh, right? So uh, we started the study, and then uh, some of you may know Joe and Charlene Bridges. Uh, Joe was a professor at Malone for many years, and they were friends with Zev, and so they invited Zev to come. And what a wonderful uh, uh, gift he has been to our group. He's been there with us, and 
has come to be my co-teacher in that group, and we have had a wonderful experience together. Um, I don't know if any of you know a man in the Bible named Apollos. Has anyone ever heard of him and remember him? A uh, fabulously learned Jewish person from Alexandria. Uh, was well regarded in the Jewish community, a f great teacher, and when he was located at Ephesus, he happened to meet two of Paul's friends, Priscilla and Aquila. And they heard him teach. And uh, being the good uh, evangelist that they were, they invited him over for bagels and cream cheese. And you better laugh at my jokes. And they, uh, <laughs> thank you, unrolled the scrolls and they got into it and uh, who knows how long it took, I would presume hours, maybe days, but at the end of that process of them sharing with Apollos, he came to see that Jesus was his Messiah as well. And I think he's the person that uh, Paul refers to in Corinthians as the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel have been scattered abroad in the churches. He was a fabulous teacher. Everybody wanted to learn from him. Why? Because he was stunningly well-educated, knew the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Tanakh, by heart. And with his newfound faith in Jesus as Messiah, was able to greatly encourage many people to realize that, yes, there really is a Jewish root. There are, there are reasons why we can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, so you're getting a great gift in this course because you're going to study with the closest thing that you will ever come to Apollos in the 21st century. And I'm serious about that. Zev is fabulously well-learned, and he loves Jesus, and he is a great man. Now, um, he's impacted my life in many ways, but one I will share with you today. Uh, he's my only friend who has ever declined a second ride in my sports car. <laughs> now, Pastor DeVries took one look at it and he wouldn't even get into it. And the reason that he declined it was because, as you can see, Zev is 6'5". And um, so, it was an interesting day, opening the door and trying to <laughs> shove his legs in there. We got him in, and when he got out, he said, that's it. Next day, I, uh, I wrote to him and said, we want me to pick you up? He said, no, that's okay, I'll take the bus. <laughs> okay, so um, but this had a profound impact on me because I haven't grown since I was 15. When I was 15, I was 5'10", 175 pounds, and projected to be 6'3", 6'4". My goal at that time was to be a linebacker for the Ohio State Bucker, Buckeyes. I thought I was gonna be like Jack Tatum. And then, even though I drank iodine in my milk and did all these things, guess what happened? <laughs> Nothing, I stopped. So I finally realized the other day when I was driving around, you know, if God would have answered my prayer and I'd have been 6'5", I wouldn't be able to drive this car. So, with all that nonsense done, I introduce to you Zev Rosenberg. You will learn a lot, and God bless you. All you have to do here, Zev, hmm? is hit that, or okay. hit the bottom, and it'll just, see it? Yeah, no, yes, okay. 
Okay, a few disclaimers to start with. If it takes a genius to get admitted to Carleton College, I must have been admitted by affirmative action. <laughs> and uh, not only am I six foot five, but another reason why I refused a second ride in John's car is being the age that I am, I have made acquaintance with our friend Arthur and the knees just don't bend the way they used to. Um, first of all, I really do want to begin by thanking John for inviting me to be a part of this educational experience. And uh, I certainly hope that we can share the letter to the Hebrews is one of those letters that is hardly taught even in seminaries of mainline denominations these days. And yet I think that it is an incredibly important part of the New Testament. And um, so what I hope is that we can experience uh, the joy of what this letter can bring to us, but also the important teaching that it has, because it has certainly been something that has been very important in my life, as I would like to make clear. Um, I'd like to begin with your indulgence by reading a section or you know, some excerpts from what I recently composed as my personal testimony of faith. I'm a work in progress. I am the sum total of all my experiences, of all my actions, and all my possibilities, past, present, and future. Consistency is a luxury I choose not to afford myself. Uh, even coherence may be asking too much. A life is as it is lived and not as it is told. The reason I say this is that at the heart of my life's journey is something of a contradiction. I am Jewish and I am a Christian. Those two realities may have been able to easily cohabit one life in the first century CE, but not in the post-Holocaust 21st. Nonetheless, I cannot but affirm the integrity of my life, not in spite of its contradictions and of the decisions that I have made, but precisely because of them. As Kent M. Keith, author of The Paradoxical Commandments wrote, People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. That especially includes oneself. So while I was born and will remain Jewish, if only in an adjectival sense, I converted to Christianity sincerely. I am and will remain a Christian. I must choose, though, whether to live as a Jew or as a Christian. I know I cannot be both. While I can hold these two realities together in my heart, I know enough to recognize that I cannot do so in community. And this is the place my heart has been taken. But how did I get here? And why do I believe what I do? I must surely be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in me. First, a little short history lesson. On the eve of the Passover, about the year 27, an itinerant Jewish preacher, teacher, healer, and exorcist uh, from Galilee was crucified by order of the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. That he was crucified is significant. It indicated he was executed for sedition against the Roman state. That he had been handed over to Rome by Sadducean authorities is also significant. The Sadducees denied belief in the future restoration of the Davidic kingship. In fact, 
in the coming of any Messiah. Then there was the titulus placed above the condemned man's head by Pilate, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Put together, these facts yield one unambiguous conclusion, that Jesus of Nazareth was executed by Rome as a messianic pretender. Then something extraordinary happened. On the third day, as we know today, some women who were disciples of Jesus went to the tomb where he had been laid and found it empty. Later, Jesus himself appeared to some of his disciples. Jesus had been raised from the dead. The resurrection could mean only one thing. God had vindicated Jesus as his chosen and righteous servant. Given his execution as a messianic pretender, Jesus' disciples could come to only one conclusion. Jesus was the coming one, the Messiah. Jewish hope for the coming of the Messiah had grown beyond the desire for the political restoration of the Davidic line of kings. It had become the prophetic hope for the coming end of days that would fulfill the meaning of history in an era of universal justice, peace, and love, the kingdom of God on earth. God would reign through the Messiah as his viceroy. Jesus had been done to death by an empire embodying the rule of violence, cruelty, oppression, and death. That dominion hasn't vanished from history with the fall of Rome. Nor has the kingdom of God come in its fullness. But Jesus' resurrection means that even if only as a foretaste, an aperitif, if you will, the messianic kingdom of God has broken into the midst of history, bringing hope like a ray of light into the darkness. And by the way, that reference to an aperitif gives away the fact that I'm an Episcopalian at heart. But in addition to this historical messianic dimension, there is the personal and salvific one. Each of us must answer for ourselves to further questions from our hearts. What does the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ mean to me, and how am I to respond to it personally? If I cannot answer those questions from the depth of my soul, I cannot truly be ready to make a defense of the hope that is in me. So what does the death and resurrection of Jesus mean to me personally? The image I find most compelling is that of the letter to the Hebrews. Christ has entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I vividly remember how year after year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I would literally beat my breast and confess in grief exactly the same sins I had repented of the year before. 
The most awesome and holy day of the Jewish calendar became for me an annual reminder of moral and spiritual failure, ultimately eroding all shreds of love for and trust in God. Even today, when I hear the words eternal death, I know what they mean because I felt it. Then, when I read the letter to the Hebrews with an open mind, an enormous and unbearable burden rolled off my heart. By his death and resurrection, Jesus had offered the once for all perfect and eternal sacrifice for my sins and the sins of the world. He had redeemed me from eternal death and has obtained for me eternal life in himself. And even now I am confident he sits at the right hand of the Father on high praying for me. But these understandings only came in to me following my conversion to Christianity. And that was a process at once mundane and dramatic. In spite of which, some years ago, I renounced holy orders and left the Episcopal Church to re-explore my Jewish heritage and to re-immerse myself in it. I have since experienced a complete renewal of my Christian faith, thanks be to God. In particular, I came to realize that I deeply needed a God with a human face and a human heart. I needed a God who had identified with and entered into the human experience in all its pain, suffering, and brokenness. I could only find that in Jesus Christ. So this course is in some measure a personal pilgrimage for me. I am, if you will, one of the Hebrews for whom Apollos wrote this letter. And John and I are agreed that probably it was Apollos of Alexandria who wrote it. As will become clear as we go along, I cannot but view the letter to the Hebrews as if it had been written personally to me. So please don't expect objectivity. <laughs> what I hope to do is bring this letter alive for you. Now to do that, we need a little background. Uh, in one respect, I would like to challenge one minor detail of what John presented in his introduction when he said that Apollos was deeply steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. He was deeply steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, but not in Hebrew. He would have been deeply steeped in the, what we call the Old Testament, in its Septuagint Greek uh, uh, background. One of the things that becomes very clear, especially in the letter to the Hebrews, that it is that Alexandrian Hellenistic Jewish experience as embodied in the Septuagint Greek Bible which lies beneath the letter to the Hebrews. All of the quotes without exception from the Older Testament that are found in the letter to the Hebrews are taken directly from the Septuagint version. So to understand something of what the letter of the Hebrews meant, why it was written, for whom it was written, uh, we do have to understand a little bit of something of Alexandrian Jewish um, Christ, uh, Ju Judaism. Now, you should all have received as a handout a brief timeline for the history of Judaism, um, Judaism after the Babylonian exile. I am not going to go through this in detail, but I do want to go through a few key events in Hellenistic Judaism. I once totally alienated 
uh, one of my undergraduate friends at Sewanee who was a classics major. I told her that the only date in classical history that I knew, remembered was 332 B.C. She said, well, what happened in 332 B.C.E.? And I said, Alexander the Great conquered the Holy Land. And she says, that's the only one you remember? But that is an incredibly important event, both for Judaism and for Greek culture. Why? Because it was the first time that Judaism had ever encountered a culture from beyond the Fertile Crescent. It was the first time the Jews had encountered a European culture. And it was enormously attractive to them. And therefore, this began the struggle, if you will, for hearts and minds of Jewish people throughout the Holy Land and throughout the dispersion, particularly in uh, the Holy Land and in Egypt, between Judaism and Hellenism, between the Jewish traditions and Greek culture. Um, so that's an enormously important date. A second one is about 250 BCE in the much, under the much more tolerant rule of the Ptolemies in Egypt. It was actually one of the Ptolemaic rulers who requested of the Jews a Greek translation of their scripture, which at that time pretty much is the Torah, the five books of Moses, as it had been brought uh, to and uh, read before the people earlier, before the Ale uh, Alexander's conquest, uh, by Ezra the scribe. Now the legend is that it's called the translation of the Seventy, they round it down. The uh, legend is that 72 Jewish scholars assembled in separate rooms, individually translating from the Hebrew the Torah, the five books of Moses, and they all came up with the same translation. Now, this is what we call in Yiddish a bubamaisa, <laughs> a grandmother's tale. Get two Jews together, you'll have three opinions. Uh, so, but, you know, the idea is that they did do this translation of Greek. Now, what's important about the Septuagint is that especially in Alexandrian, in Egyptian Judaism, this would have been the version of Torah that they would have known. Most of them had ceased to be able to either speak or read Hebrew or Aramaic. It was just not a language that was commonly used in Egypt. Instead, when they went to their synagogues and heard the Torah read, it would have been read in Greek. This was to them the Torah, the, uh, the teaching of God. So it's important to keep in mind that their mindset was very thoroughly Greek in language. And that has quite a lot of implications. The next date is about 200 BCE, uh, it was decided pretty much what the books of the prophets were. The earlier prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Anybody be able to recite all twelve prophets, minor prophets so-called? Anybody want to give it a shot? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, you see, a Hebrew school education can have some advantages. 
But about 200 BC, the collection of books known as the Prophets, and of course these were instantly translated into Greek in Alexandria. And further translations of the writings followed. By the time of Jesus, the canon that would pretty well have been recognized in Alexandria would have been the Greek Septuagint version of the Torah of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And that's very important because the fact is that the letter to the Hebrews will do an enormous amount of quotation from Psalms, and he is quoting always from the Septuagint Greek version. Now, all of this was under the Ptolemaic rulers of the Egyptian dynasty that followed Alexander the Great, who were very tolerant of other religions. Perhaps they had to be because ruling from Egypt, they had ancient religions galore that they had to deal with. However, uh, in the Holy Land, that had passed from the rulership of the Ptolemies to the Seleucids of, of Syria, uh, whose capital was in Antioch, uh, which is, of course, a city that we're all familiar with from the New Testament. And it was particularly under uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes that he began a process of forced Hellenization of his empire because he was concerned about the growing power of Rome and felt that it was necessary that everybody be on the same page religiously, and therefore you couldn't have this non-Hellenistic religion called Judaism being practiced in his domains. The result was a revolt, the Maccabean revolt, that is celebrated every year in the Jewish calendar at Hanukkah. And uh, basically, therefore, what you find is in the Holy Land itself and in Syria, the attitude between Judaism and Hellenism is incredibly antagonistic and very suspicious of Greek culture. And uh, this would have been true for most Jews who spoke Aramaic as their mother tongue. And therefore, there is a very great difference between the attitude towards Greek culture that you'll find in the Holy Land and the attitude that you will find in Egypt and throughout the Greek-speaking diaspora. However, in spite of Antiochus' efforts, in 63 BCE, Pompey annexed Judea to Rome. So the opposition, in effect, changed, and now we are dealing with Judea and Egypt as part of the Roman Empire. And uh, what, of course, is important is that as far as Rome is concerned, the universal language of the Eastern Roman Empire is Greek. However, as far as the Jewish world is concerned, it's split. For the Fertile Crescent, the Holy Land, Syria, Babylon, it is Aramaic, and for Egypt and other parts of the diaspora, it is Greek. So you find that kind of split personality, if you will. Now, about 13, from about 13 BCE to 41 CE, you have the career of an extraordinary individual named Philo Judaeus, Philo of Alexandria. Philo was a philosopher, and as a philosophy major and as a Jewish thought major, I studied Philo. He's an interesting character who had actually very little influence on subsequent Judaism. He had enormous influence on the history of the church, however. 
Philo was the first person to attempt to really reconcile in philosophical terms Greek culture and the Torah. And he gave a legacy to Judaism, which I think is uh, to, well, actually to Christianity, that is very interesting. Philo was a Neoplatonist. Um, and so he actually came up with a rather odd idea that Plato had gotten his inspiration sort of by a roundabout route from the Eastern Mediterranean that ultimately came from Moses. Uh, but the important point is that he began to look at the Greek Bible that he used and to understand it in an allegorical fashion in order to integrate Platonic philosophy with the teachings of the Torah. And this would have an enormous impact on the church through two followers, as it were, of Philo, the early Greek fathers, Clement of Alexandria and Origen. And so um, he was a contemporary of Jesus. Now, there's very little direct uh, evidence of direct influence of Philo's thinking on the letter to the Hebrews. But nonetheless, that sort of ethos of trying to reconcile Greek thought with uh, the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures or the Greek scriptures um, is one of the things that we can look for to be taking place a great deal. And then finally, in 70 CE, probably the single most important event in uh, Jewish history of that century was the destruction of the temple by the Romans after the during, you know, as a result of the failure of the first Jewish revolt. Major themes in Hellenistic Judaism. And here I basically just want to talk about four things that I think we have to take a look at. First, we have to think in terms of, Plato has an idea which was called in philosophy the divided line. And the divided line, everything above the divided line belongs to the intelligible world. Mathematical objects, perfect archetypes, those sorts of things. And everything below the divided line is everything we experience with our senses. What that influences in Hellenistic Judaism is the idea that there is an unchanging heavenly realm and that that is far more real than the changing earthly realm. Now, this is going to be something that's very, throughout this letter, you're going to have to wrap yourself around this notion, which is very different from the positivistic cultural mindset that we have in Western culture at the moment. The idea that what is real is what we can grasp with our senses, and what we can grasp with our thoughts is not real. For a Hellenistic person, the exact opposite is true. What we can grasp only with our intellect, that's what's truly real, because it doesn't change. It's perfect. What we experience with our senses, because it changes, that is less real. Okay? In fact, the earthly realm essentially contains mere copies and types of what the realities are in the heavenly realm. 
And this is something that we'll see again and again in the letter to the Hebrews, particularly when he describes how Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle. God said to Moses, be sure to construct this tabernacle according to the pattern that I showed you. As far as Hellenistic Jews were concerned, what that meant is there is a perfect heavenly tabernacle, unchanging, eternal in the heavens. That's the real tabernacle. What Moses built in the desert was a copy. Okay? And in fact, the temple in Jerusalem, for all of its importance, was a mere copy of the copy. And therefore, actually of far less importance than what Moses was shown on top of the mountain. I always like to say anyway, one of the problems we have with uh, Moses going up on top of Mount Sinai and receiving the Torah and then coming down and telling the people is that ever since then people have been far more interested in what Moses said at the foot of the mountain than what he saw at the top of the mountain. And what the letter to the Hebrews wants to try to give us is some kind of a glimpse into what Moses saw on top of the mountain. All earthly events, including those of the last days, are already realized in the heavenly realm. In other words, the heavenly realm includes everything that ever has happened, is happening, or ever will happen on earth as an already realized truth. Okay, everything that we experience in history is just the outworking of what is already complete and perfect in the heavenly realms. And again, this is going to be something that is going to be very difficult for us to grasp, but this is what is called, you know, a realized eschatology, to use some pretty fancy words. In other words, even the last days are an already accomplished fact in the heavenly realm. Okay, uh, think for a moment, if you will, of the final part of the book of Revelation, where John sees the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her bridegroom. What he's seeing is the perfect embodiment of the last days that's been waiting in heaven eternally, already finished, now coming down onto the earth to consummate the outworking of that in human history. That's very Hellenistic, and it is something that we're going to have to sort of look at. No. It's not just God's foreknowledge. Repeat the but question. Again, Repeat yeah, the question was, are, am I just speaking about God's foreknowledge of future history? Uh, actually, no. Because God's knowledge is not subject to time, first of all. So it's not that God foreknows what is going to happen. Because for God, past, present, and future are all present in an eternal now. Okay? It's as if it had already happened. In other words, you're looking at reality from outside the space-time continuum. Okay? But secondly... Uh, don't forget that God's knowledge is not passive. In order for me to know you, 
I have to experience you, which means you have to come to me, you have to reveal something of yourself to me, and we have to have some kind of an interaction. Okay? So I learn about you. Okay? I have to take in some information and some ideas. That's not the way God's knowledge works. God's knowledge is what Kant called original intuition. God thinks, and boom, it is. Okay? So God's knowledge is very different. And again, that's something that we basically, in our empiricist culture, have a hard time wrapping ourselves around. So, what I hope, what you're going to have to do to understand the letter to the Hebrews is sort of put yourself in the position of an ancient person who understands how this works. In some ways, my basic problem with the, what I also call the so-called enlightenment is that um, it greatly impoverished our way of looking at reality. We reduced everything, all truth to fact. When, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, let me just ask you a question. I always like to try to ask this question when I'm dealing with issues of modernism versus ancient, the richness of ancient understandings of reality. Would anyone here care to guess which book of the Bible in the Middle Ages was more commented on than any other book? Which had more commentaries written on it in the Middle Ages than any other book of the Bible? Anybody? Hmm? John? No. Not Isaiah. What? Not Revelation. Not Genesis. <laughs> the Song of Songs. Why? Because this was the great allegory of the love of God for the soul. This wasn't just erotic poetry. This was the divine romance. And that's why it was, a, in some ways, I think what happened with the Enlightenment is we threw the baby out with the bathwater on a lot of scores. Okay? And finally, the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. What this is basically saying is this. I want you to begin looking at Scripture as if the surface meaning is just that, just the surface meaning. And that beneath that surface meaning, there are layers and layers and layers of deeper meaning and understanding. And that what the text means is a result of a process of reinterpreting Scripture in light of a deeper truth. And again, that's something that's very difficult for us in modern times because a whole lot of this was thrown out at the Reformation. Whereas, you know, again, for people in the days of the letter to the Hebrews, this was standard operating procedure. Um, I'm reminded I also do teachings of Jewish mysticism, of Kabbalah. There's a fascinating passage from the Zohar, the text of mystical Judaism, which says that whoever interprets the Bible literally is looking only at the clothing of Scripture, not at its reality. So, um, we really need to understand that it is a case of digging deeper, constantly digging deeper. 
Any questions? Uh, well, actually, Revelation is a, is, is a type of a genre that was incredibly popular in Judaism at the time called apocalypses. There were literally a dime a dozen. Okay, there were, there were dozens of these apocalypses asking, you know, how did Jews think about the last days? It wasn't like Revelation. But Revelation, in many ways, is an extremely Jewish book. Uh, apocalyptic literature was basically literature that was written. Uh, to buck up the spirits of people under oppression. So it was very popular under Roman domination of the Jewish people and especially of the Holy Land. And the idea behind apocalypse, if someone has had a revelation, an apocalypsis in Greek, that the last days are about to come where God is going to descend and do something really radical about the problem of human re evil and unrighteousness and injustice. And uh, what that means is that there, there are going to be a whole lot of dead people, uh, but also that the, the righteous, the just, the saints of God will reign with God on earth in holiness and righteousness. You know, in basically in Jewish thought, this was tied up with two expectations that were absolutely critical for their understanding. One was the messianic kingdom of God on earth which would have been a universal reign on earth of justice, peace, and love involving the abolition of warfare, the abolition of injustice, you know, just a perfect world. The lion shall lie down with the lamb and the wolf and the kid shall pasture together and all that kind of stuff. Um, there would have had to have been a lot of dental surgery for the predators, but... Um, in any event, there was that idea of the peaceable kingdom on earth. Uh, which obviously we don't see around us. The second thing was the resurrection of the dead. And that this would be the final ultimate uh, act of God's reign on earth, that the dead will rise, you know, and because the idea was not a disembodied existence in heaven, but an embodied existence here on earth in a realized kingdom of God. And before you poo-poo that idea... Take a look at the Apostles' Creed, because it doesn't say that we believe in the immortality of the soul. There is no creedal statement in the church that proclaims belief in the immortality of the soul. What the Apostles' Creed is that we believe in the resurrection of the body. So, I hope it will be somewhat improved in my case. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? No, because again, did the Romans bring to this apocalyptic? What they brought to the apocalyptic uh, mindset was a whole lot of new set of oppressions. Okay, because as far as the Romans were concerned. Um, they had realized the ideal state in the Roman Empire. And therefore, anyone who questioned the rightness of Roman rule was a, was a candidate for crucifixion. And that's why, you know, one of the things you have to realize is 
If anyone in that Roman Empire had talked about simply the kingdom, they were referring to the Roman Empire. So when Jewish apocalyptists or Christian uh, apostles talked about the kingdom of God, they were talking about a reality in radical opposition to the Roman Empire, and therefore that was radically subversive. I like what John Dominic Crossan said. We have to understand a phrase like the kingdom of God as 100% spiritual and 100% political. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, well, let me introduce you to one of my favorite Greek fathers. He said, if all we're, you know, been trying to study in the Bible is just the outward garment, you know, when are we ever going to get there? Uh, one of my favorite uh, fathers of the church is St. Gregory of Nyssa. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they actually talk about the ultimate goal of Christian life as theosis, being made God, being divinized. And since God is infinite, that is a process that literally has no end. So perfection doesn't mean that you arrive at some end time and say, I've made it. I don't have anything further to learn. Guess what? You're going to be studying this stuff eternally. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. This is just the starting point. What we are here on earth, this is kindergarten. Okay? Once you get to heaven, then you're in secondary school. <laughs> yeah. Result of? Oh. Yes. Okay. Um, the question was about my statement about uh, how, in a sense, it's, it was easy to be both Jewish and a Christian in the first century CE, but in the post Holocaust 21st century, those two realities do not live easily together. Unfortunately, what the Holocaust did, among other things, was bring to a climax an enormous amount of anti-Semitism that had largely been fueled by Christian anti-Semitism for 2,000 years. And so at the very heart of the Christian claim is the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And when Jews look at the way in which Christians treated Jews for 2,000 years, their basic reaction is, such a Messiah we don't need. And especially in the Holocaust, when many Christians, you know, some of whom, you know, we would like to say, well, those weren't real Christians. Yes, they were. I aided and abetted the Nazi final solution. And so we really have to come to terms with that as Christians. I have to come to terms with that as a Christian. Okay. How is it that I can reconcile my belief in Jesus as the Messiah and my Christianity with everything that's happened between Christians and Jews? Well, it's not easy. Let me tell you, something happened six months after I converted to Christianity. I had a dream. And in this dream, I was an SS concentration camp guard on trial for war crimes. And when I woke up from that dream, I did not say, oh my God, what have I done? 
I said, God help me when I look at the Holocaust and can only identify with the victims and not with the perpetrators as part of what it means to be a human being. And that's a pretty post-conventional understanding of Jewish identity and Christian identity, I think. But what I also think we have to recognize is that one of the things that that means is, I, I, I remember when I was a fairly new priest in West Virginia and uh, in the part of the southern coal fields in um, McDowell County, the free state of McDowell in southern West Virginia in the town of Welch. And uh, a person came up to me, I remember her name, I will not name her here. She was actually a member of the local Presbyterian church. But she said, I think it's wonderful that you're here because you can witness to all the Jews here in McDowell County. Well, there were about three of them. <laughs> so I said to her, you know, Paul says in the letter to the Romans that a partial hardening has come upon the Jewish people until the full number of the Gentiles has been brought in. So when the last Gentile in MacDowell County has been evangelized and churched, then come and talk to me about the three Jews who live here. Okay? And I think that's, and I'm an evangelist. That's, that's that what I think is, 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 is a major part of my vocation, is as an evangelist. But what I'm saying is, the Jewish, Paul is saying the Jewish people are God's special problem. He'll take care of them. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Right. Well, certainly that is a great blessing, and I don't want to deny that, but it's sort of like a way in which uh, I sometimes think that we are disabled as white people in understanding the problem of racism. That racism in the United States is not really a problem of prejudice. It is a problem of systemically ingrained white privilege. And we are largely oblivious to that because we swim in it like fish in water and benefit from it. And the same way you have to understand, in a sense, anti-Semitism in our culture as an ingrained system of Christian privilege. Okay. When I was growing up in Denver, I went to a school that was about, you know, a public high school, George Washington High School, about 30% Jewish. And we were off for Christmas and Easter, but we had to bring excuses to the excuse office if we wanted off for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You see what I'm saying? Okay. We live, yeah.
Um, I'm not quite sure I heard the question. A, the, a post-Holocaust Jewish theologian at mid-century who said that after the Holocaust it's no longer even possible for Jews to accept the tenets of religion. Yeah. Um, there is a whole field of Jewish Holocaust theology that is incredibly rich and incredibly diverse. And the basic fact is you always come down to there are basically two camps in Jewish thought as a result of the Holocaust. The one says, how can you believe? And the other says, how can you not believe? Uh, I like what Elie Wiesel said when he said, on the divine level, we will never understand the Holocaust. The silence of God at Auschwitz is an ultimate mystery that we will probably never be able to understand in human terms. What we can understand is what it means in terms of the revelation it gave us of what it means to be human. And if, in fact, we cannot believe, then when I look at the Holocaust, I don't see much of the ground for hope for the future of the humankind. Because in human terms, after the Holocaust, nothing is impossible. Any other questions? Well, I see we're close to our quitting time, but I did promise John the last he word. Did, he did say I could have one minute at the end, so <laughs> <laughs> that will work out. <clears throat> Thank you, Zev. Now, um, you have a handout here that I will pick up next week. I was going to do it today, but I'm delighted that um, you asked Zev so many questions. I was a little worried that you might not. I've never seen him not have an answer to a question that's been asked of him. It'll happen. And I, well, yeah, but I know more than he does, and so I know that <laughs> he always gives great answers. So uh, in the weeks to come, please, it's okay to ask questions. This isn't going to be a lecture series. We want you to interact with us. Now, this little handout that I made for today, uh, I will start next week and give you a five-minute overview of this so that you can feel, feel emotionally the implications of the letter to Hebrews. And I think that's very important in light of what he just said. When you are conditioned to view your worldview, your Weltanschauung, the way you look at life is one way. Sometimes you need an emotional shot to get you to see things from a slightly different viewpoint. So bear with me for one minute, and I'll give you a, an overview, and then you think about this, and we'll come back next week. Now, Zev has talked to you about the history of Judaism, so I'll use this as a symbol. Uh, I personally think Moses received the Torah in 1445 B.C. So by the time we get to Jesus, we have 1,500 years of people who uh, 1,500 years of people who have been following a worldview, a book, a way of life. It's become systemically ingrained in everything that they are and do. And then, as Zeb told you, what happened that we are all here today for? A person named Jesus comes along and he claims to be what? The Messiah. And so, what happened for Jewish people, and this is what the book of Hebrews is all about, is that when you have a 
a religion that has been predicated, founded upon a book that has been inspired by God, suddenly Jewish people were now being asked to do what? To totally reject this? No, but to accept the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment, the enhancement, the completion, not denying this, but taking this on to the next level. And uh, that's a shocking experience to have happen to somebody, to be all of a sudden told that which you have always believed is no longer just static. You now have to take another step. Now, for those of you who are Christians here today, let me give it to you emotionally so you can feel it and think about it as you leave here. About uh, 550 years after Jesus, another person came along, Muhammad, also a monotheist. I have the copy of the Quran here with me today. And what did he say? People of the book, yes, but fraught with errors, unfortunately. People of the book, yes, Jesus was a prophet. New Testament writings, good as they go, but guess what? Uh, just a prophet, but the worldview, the books, the writings, fraught with errors. So what has God done now? Raised up the final prophet, the last prophet, with the final word that corrects the errors and pulls the good stuff with it so that now in the Quran you have the corrected version that God wants you to have. Now, if that's true, then that means what for the Christian? Pardon me? You uh, currently, uh, you believe some truth, uh, and you believe a lot of error, and thus you need to do what? Uh, yeah, 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 sure, educate, but what else? You need to convert to Islam, and then you'll have the full and final truth. Now, in the Quran, Muhammad says, no way that God would allow such a prophet as Jesus to be killed. I don't know if you knew that or not. So the Quran denies the death of Jesus. If he didn't die, then what? There was no resurrection, and that means what for all of you who are here saying Christ is risen? You're all in a cult and misled. Now, I want you to feel that. Don't react to it. Understand it. And come back next week, and we will go further. God bless you. Have a great Easter Sunday, and thanks for coming. Bye-bye.